Please join me for a word of prayer. Oh God, take my words and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our will. Set them on fire for love of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Welcome to Christ the King. A friend of mine developed a list of staff values uh, for a company he leads. And I've adjusted one of those values so that it is appropriate for a church setting. Uh, the discerning adult can probably pick out the words that I have changed. But the staff value is shine when bad things happen. Shine when bad things happen. This point of this staff value is that anyone can shine when the sun is shining. Anyone can do their work and can work with integrity and work hard when everything's coming up roses. Uh, when the sun is shining, but it takes someone of a special integrity and character to do the same when the sun is not shining. We're in a sermon series entitled God in the Grind. During this series, it'll last one more week, we've thought about the season of life that I've described as the grind. I know I feel like many of you that would describe your position, your situation, I think true for me, the grind. What is the grind? It's the season, if you've ever been driving down a, down a road and you seem to catch every red light, that's the grind. Like nothing seems to be breaking your way. Uh, and for no discernible reason, like there's nothing you've done that would prompt this uh, string of red lights, but it just happens. And it happens to all of us. And it happens to the people that we encounter in the Bible. So every week we've looked at one character from the Bible and we have asked the question of, where is God in the grind? What do we learn from uh, these stories? This Sunday, we are going to look at the story of Jeremiah and Jeremiah was in the grind. And the title for this sermon, apologies for the somewhat uh, patronizing rhyme, but the title could be to shine in the grind. Because that's exactly what Jeremiah does. He shines. He lives in dark days, and the darker the days become, the more Jeremiah shines. And that's ambitious for you. Last week we talked about Elijah. Elijah is a much more human character. If you remember, Elijah was in the pit of despair. He's a very human response. And I thought, yeah, I can kind of relate to that. Jeremiah shines with such brilliance, he's almost an unrelatable figure. But yet it's something for us to think about. How do we not just, again, sorry for the punchline or the... Uh, how do we not just thrive, survive in the grind, but thrive, right? How do we shine in the grind? And as we look at Jeremiah, we're going to find two very simple things that Jeremiah needs, and we need to shine in the grind. I promise that's the last time I'll say that. Uh, he has faith, and he has a sense of, an acute sense of corporate responsibility. Faith and acute sense of corporate responsibility are the things that you and I need to shine when life gets tough, all right? That's what a Jeremiah has. Faith. What is it? Well, this passage provides a wonderful example of biblical faith. Uh, the mo the, it's one of those common words we hear all the time. You got to have it. Everyone needs it. What is faith? Well, actually, there's a very good, clear definition of what faith is. Faith is described in the Bible in a book called Hebrews chapter 11. Faith is described as really two parts. So this opening point has two, two sub points. Faith is 
both the assurance of things hoped for, so faith looks out to tomorrow with a certain clarity and assurance. Faith is the assurance of things that are hoped for, and it is also the conviction of things that are not seen. So faith looks at this present moment and says, I don't know, I don't see everything that there is to see. So two parts the assurance of things that are out there, and a skepticism, a healthy skepticism about things that are right in front of us. And Jeremiah had both of those. Let's think about his story. Jeremiah, as I suggested, was, uh, lived in dark days. And you know, just a little bit of the, the history of the nation of Israel, there are plenty of dark days in the nation's history, and this is one of the darkest. Uh, the enemy is right at the gate. Uh, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, that, may, that name may ring a bell, Nebuchadnezzar is right outside the gate. Most scholars think that within a few, uh, a few weeks, if not days, of writing this passage, the whole city fell. Jerusalem ceased to exist, and as Jerusalem fell, so did the whole entire nation. The nation, for all intents and purposes, ceased to become a thing after it fell reconstituted only in 1940s. Remarkable, isn't it? The enemy is at the gate. The city is about to be overrun. Famine and pestilence within. I mean, it just could not get darker. And in the middle of this dark day, Jeremiah does something that justifies logic, defies all reason. He buys a field. He buys a field in a war-torn land. Just think of how illogical, how unreasonable that is. I mean, Jeremiah lost his money. He says 17 shekels of silver. The, most think that that is all he had. 17 shekels of silver gone. Why? Because as soon as he buys that land, it's going to be counted as completely worthless as another nation takes hold of it. So he lost money. He lost his reputation. You may be familiar with that old saw, I've got some oceanfront property in Arizona. I mean, think of just how gullible Jeremiah must have seen to all who observed him. Yeah, Jeremiah, I've got something else I'd like to sell you as well. Illogical, unreasonable. He buys a field in a war-torn land. Now, why did he do this? Why? Because he had assurance of things he hoped for. He had a clear vision of what tomorrow would bring, and that clear vision, of course, was informed by God's word. Verse 15, he is assured that houses, fields, and vineyards would once again be bought in this land. So what are the implications of this opening observation? I think one of the implications is sometimes biblical faith should prompt us to do things that are illogical and unreasonable. So there was a book written some years ago by a philosopher named John Locke entitled The Reasonableness of Christianity. I've never read it, but I agree with the title that Christianity is a reasonable religion. It is reasonable to believe in God. It is reasonable to believe in his son, Jesus. It is reasonable, very reasonable. One not need discount or check their brain at the door to become a follower of Christ. It is a very, the content of the faith is very reasonable. However, just because the content of the faith is reasonable does not mean the practice of the faith is also reasonable. And sometimes our reasonable content of our faith, which we believe in, should prompt us to do unreasonable things. And I'm frankly 
For myself, I look at my faith and I think it's pretty predictable, pretty reasonable. And that's okay for most of the times. But in Jeremiah, you see a, a lack of reason, a lack of all empirical by all empirical measurements, what he did was completely illogical, and he's not the only one. I mean, every hero of faith operates under the same principle, illogical and unreasonable by every empirical standard of this day. Think of Noah. Noah built an ark when it was sunny. Noah, why are you building an ark? It's sunny outside. What you are doing seems unreasonable and illogical. Why did Noah build an ark? Because Noah had a clear vision of what tomorrow would bring based upon God's word. He was assured of things that he hoped for. Perhaps you know the story of the 21 uh, Egyptian martyrs who lost their life just a few years ago. Why did they sacrifice all they had? Illogical, unreasonable. Why? Why? Because... They had a clear vision of what tomorrow would bring. They had a clear desire for their heavenly home. And I just want to suggest that for most of us, the, the content of our faith is reasonable, yes, but that does not mean the practice of our faith should be reasonable all the time. And to shine in the grind, to be unpredictable, to be courageous when it's raining, when things are hard, it requires an assurance, an assurance of things that are hoped for. So that's our first point, the assurance of things hoped for. Second point, biblical faith requires a healthy skepticism of the present moment. I, we didn't read this, by the way, uh, our reader did a phenomenal job, so many uh, so many difficult names. Uh, we didn't read the last part of the passage, which includes Jeremiah's reflection. Just take a look at verse 16, actually verse 17. So now you see Jeremiah has just purchased this field. He just made, has made this foolish investment. And look at his prayer. I wonder if any of you have ever prayed prayers like this. Ah, Lord, <laughs> what did I just do? Why did I just do this? Why did I just... It doesn't make sense. My faith is not an absence of doubt, but it is a conviction to do what he knows to be right in face of his doubts. And if we could imagine the interior conversation of Jeremiah as uh, evidenced by this prayer he prays, and he goes on to lament his foolhardy decision that he just made buying a field in a war-torn land, we could imagine his conversation going something like this. I don't understand what you are asking me to do. Yet, I'm going to trust that there are some things around me that I just cannot see. And because I cannot see everything that is around me, I do not understand. And because I do not understand, I just, I must trust you, God. Faith is not only the assurance of things hoped for, it is the conviction of things unseen. You can't see everything. So that when we, were, when we are in the grind, what we must say, what we must pray is, Lord, I do not understand. I do not get it. I do not like it. But I trust that there are things going on around me that I just cannot see. And therefore, I cannot know all that you are up to. And I cannot understand. 
but yet I trust you. And further, I have hope in what tomorrow will bring. I trust that you love me. I trust that Jesus died for me. I trust that God is good to me. I trust that he will provide me. So God, help me to act today in light of what I believe to be true for tomorrow. About three years ago, four years ago, really it was right when I turned 40, I bought, uh, had to get reading glasses. The ailment is called presbyopia. Presbyopia means old eyes. Presba, elder, opia, eyes. Old eyes. Very descriptive, isn't it? Pres so I was walking through CVS and I thought, I just can't see my fingerprints anymore. So I bought a pair, I tried on a pair of, of reading glasses and I thought, oh, there are my finger, there's my, there's my fingerprints. I can see again. The problem with reading glasses, and I can't, uh, I can't afford with the rate I break and lose reading glasses anything other than dime store. Uh, the problem with them, there's no gradation. So you look like a very beautiful Monet painting. I can't tell if you're sleeping. I trust you're not sleeping. But, but all I can see is, a, is shapes. Now what's in front of me is very clear. But what's out there is very fuzzy. And biblical faith works in the opposite way. It does the opposite of what these glasses do to my vision. Biblical faith makes what is out there very clear and crisp. And it makes what is here very, it helps me hold this present moment with the skepticism it deserves. Maybe you know that old Baptist hymn. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face. And as you do, what will happen? The things of earth will go. I'm not going to sing it. I lost the tune. But the things of earth will go strangely dim. Right? The things right in front of me will become dim as I turn my eyes in faith. That is the song for the grind. So then that is what Jeremiah has. What enables Jeremiah to shine in the grind? He has a clear vision of tomorrow based upon God's word. And he holds this present moment with the skepticism it deserves. Now to our last point. We've thought about what Jeremiah, Jeremiah needs to shine. Faith. Secondly, Jeremiah also shines because he has an acute sense of corporate responsibility. Now that may seem a little obtuse. Sometimes when you're looking at a passage, a way to think about it is, is to ask the question of what stands out, what strikes me as kind of an odd part of a, a narrative. And if you address this passage by that question, the part that stands out as being just a little bit odd is this list of names who witness the transaction. Do You see that picking up in verse 9. It's not only that Jeremiah bought a field, but there were numerous witnesses. There were witnesses who witnessed the purchase. Uh, verse 10, there was witnesses who witnessed the recording of the purchase. So we're introduced to someone named Baruch, likely some clerk of the court. So the Transaction is made and then the purchase is recorded. It's very official. But just note how many witnesses are called. It's the Judean elders. It's all these cousins. It's like the half of the city is there witnessing this real estate transaction in the midst of the war. Why? That's weird. Let me answer that question by addressing another, by referencing another passage, Psalm 73. I've referenced this this last week. Psalm 73 is a psalmist written by, the author is in the grind. Life is not going how he thinks it should. Everything's harder, red lights, etc. 
But before he speaks, before he gives voice to his complaint, he catches himself and he said, says this, if I had spoken this way, meaning if I had done something or said something which would have dishonored God, I would have betrayed. Now fill in the blank. Who would have he betrayed? I'll give you a nickel if you know the answer. He would have betrayed God, yes, but that's not what he says. He would have betrayed himself, yes, but that is not what he says. The psalmist says, if I had spoken this way, if I had dishonored God by what I said or did, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. The generation of your children. He would have betrayed those who are around him. Let's look back at our passage. Jeremiah calls half the city to witness this transaction, to witness the purchase, and then the recording of the purchase. And then Jeremiah speaks and says, take these deeds, put them in an earthen vessel that will last a long, long time. For thus says the Lord, Houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. Wow. Now just, just imagine how inspirational that would have been had you been there. And you see this one man standing up and say, this is not the end of the story. I am doing this so that you will know, that all of you will know that God is faithful. We live in such an individualistic culture and becoming more and more so. And that's not all bad. We each have the freedom uh, to be who we think God has created us to be. We are no longer encumbered by, I, I didn't need to take on my dad's line of work and my children won't be feel obligated to take on my, my line of work. We live in a very individualistic culture and some of the responsibilities that encumbered previous generations don't encumber us and that's not all bad, but there is such a thing as being too individualistic. We think of our faith in such individual terms of does it work for me and should I, should I continue in my faith for me? We think of the only person that is impacted by our faithful obedience or lack thereof as ourselves, and that is simply not true. The author of, 70, uh, the author of Psalm 73, we, sorry, we, like the author of Psalm 73, who did not betray the generation of God's children, like Jeremiah, whose public act of obedience buttressed the faith of all who witnessed what he did, we, like them, have a responsibility to those around us. We have a responsibility to the next generation. And I'll tell you what, this didn't hit me until about three years ago when I realized that I'm not the next generation. <laughs> so if you're 35 years old or younger, this probably have, will have no resonance with you. But you get to 40 and you think, I'm not, it's Jenna X, which I am. Underneath me are millennials and underneath me are post-millennials. See, the older you get, the more responsibility you bear, the more your faithfulness or your lack thereof has impact on those who are under you. And that's what Jeremiah had. And that's what the author of Psalm 73 had. His faith was not only a private, he was not the only beneficiary of his faith. He did not betray the generation of all who watched him. 
That's just such an important reminder. Your faithful obedience impacts more than just you. The term anchor man was coined for Walter Cronkite in 1952. His obituary, written July 17th in 2009, asserts with some hyperbole that not only was he an anchor for the news, but an anchor for the whole of America. Holding the craft steady, I quote, through the gales of Vietnam, Watergate, Kennedy assassination, by his stately reading of the CBS Evening News, signing off each broadcast with, and that is the way it is, on Friday, May 19th, for CBS News, I'm Walter Cronkite. Some embellishment, but that's an inspiring image. Not just an anchor for a television program, but in some ways an anchor for an entire nation. Jeremiah was an anchor. The author of Psalm 73 was an anchor. They, by the example of their own faithful obedience, held the craft steady through the gales. I just want to conclude by encouraging you and me to be anchors, to be men and women who look at this present moment and treat it with skepticism. There's more going on than you can see. Men and women who have a clear vision based upon God's word of what tomorrow will bring. Men and women like Jeremiah, like the author of Psalm 73 were anchors. May God give us the grace to be people of faith, people with an assurance of things that are hoped for and a conviction of things unseen. Amen.